Hello, one and all. My name is Andrew Grand, the Assistant Director of the Center for International Studies, and it is my pleasure, pleasure to welcome you to the third installment of our year-long speaker series on Global Inequalities, the Conditions and Consequences of Social and Natural Disparity. As we all know, recent transformations within the global economy, from the increased neoliberal reform and the dismantling of the social welfare state to manufacturing-driven growth in the global south, have resulted in a massive respatialization of wealth and poverty, adding new dimensions to one of the world's oldest problems, inequality. Through this series, CIS, along with the Program on the Global Environment, investigate the character and experience of inequality today. Upcoming talks next quarter will feature Lawrence Ralph on survival and disability in Gangling, Chicago, Anne Allison on death and precarity in Japan, and Gianendra Pandey on prejudice in India and the United States. We hope to see you at all of these future events. Today, however, with the generous help of the South Asia Language and Area Center, we are thrilled to welcome Vijay Prashad back to the University of Chicago to discuss Eastern communism and the politics of the global South. The talk stems from his current book project, No Free Left, The Futures of Indian Communism, at a time when the majority of political parties in India and in many other places, too, have embraced neoliberalism, Prashad examines the present and future of left groups that refuse accommodation with the neoliberal order. Vijay Prashad earned his PhD in history here at the University of Chicago and is currently the George and Martha Kellner Chair in South Asian History and Professor of International Studies at Trinity College in Connecticut. A prolific writer, he is the author of 16 books, most recently, The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South, and Arab Spring, Libyan Winter. Having just worked my way through uh, The Poorer Nations, I can say it's a really important uh, intervention uh, in uh, uh, nascent literature analyzing neoliberalism, really highlighting how neoliberal policies didn't merely emerge in, say, the United States and the UK and disseminate elsewhere, but emerged in response to challenges from uh, political movements in the global south. And I think it's an important way of thinking about how neoliberalism today really emerged as part of a global politics. Uh, Vijay is also author of The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, which was chosen as the best nonfiction book of, the 2000, of 2008 by the Asian American Writers Workshop, and which won the 2009 a Muzaffar Ahmad Book Prize, and of two books chosen by the Village Voice as Books of the Year, Karma, The Karma of Brown Folks in the year 2000, and Everybody Was Kung Fu Fighting, Afro-Asian Connections, and the Myth of Cultural Purity in 2001. Rashad also writes regularly in the media as a columnist for Frontline Magazine in Chennai, India, as a contributing editor for Himal South Asia uh, from Kathmandu, Nepal, a contributing edit editor for Bol, uh, based in Lahore, Pakistan, and fortnightly contributor to Asia Times, as well as an occasional correspondent of Al-Akbar, uh, based in Beirut, and a regular contributor to Counterpunch. Uh, and he also has a tremendous amount of free time on his hands, as you can imagine. Uh, uh, before turning the floor over to Vijay, just one quick note on format. Uh, uh, after the talk, there will be time for questions from the audience. Uh, there'll be a microphone that we'll, uh, we'll be passing around to the audience uh, so that your questions can be heard and also so that they can be recorded. Uh, for uh, the video that we're making of today's event. Uh, after the Q&A period, we will adjourn to the lobby uh, where wine and other refreshments await and where the seminary co-op co bookstores 
we'll offer copies of several uh, of Professor Prashad's titles. Uh, we encourage you to join us for the reception and the book signing. Uh, but now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Vijay Prashad. Good afternoon, evening. Uh, it's been 20 years since I've been in this building. So it's an interesting feeling coming in here. Uh, about longer than 20 years ago, maybe 24, 25 years ago, I went to see my advisor. I arrived here in 1988, I think, and went to see Bernard Cohen. And I told him I'm very interested in writing my PhD on caste and communism. And I said, the reason I'm interested in this, Barney, is because in 1984, one of the most formative events in my life took place in Delhi when there was an enormous pogrom over three days and, you know, three, maybe 4,000 Sikhs were killed. And in all the reports written about this event, you know, people said that the killers were Balmikis. Uh, you know, many of the killers that came in from East Delhi, from Silampur, from Tilokpuri, etc., were untouchables. And I said, I want to investigate this because I, I find this interesting that Balmikis would have been involved with the Hindu right in this killing. Barney told me, forget about, you know, caste and communism. I said, you know, but this is important because I want to know why the most oppressed community in India is with the right and not with the left. He said, why don't you first study why this community has gone to the right? That makes more sense than trying to understand why they haven't gone to the left. I said, okay, fine. And I went off to Punjab and UP and, and Delhi and I spent, you know, maybe perhaps too long uh, doing this dissertation, which of course nobody wanted to publish and was published because a friend of mine tragically died very young, Bela Malik, fought with the editor in Delhi to bring it out as a book. Uh, this is the reason why I became a professional journalist and wrote for initially The Pioneer. My history with the Hindu right is very long because an early editor I had at the Pioneer was somebody, some of you may know, Chandan Mitra. And that was an exciting moment for me, uh, trying to cover the Silampur riots in 1992 under the direction of the Pioneer's editorial board, which I think to some extent was perhaps in favor of those riots. And I was bringing in these stories about how horrible it was, people were being killed. I wasn't sure they were unhappy with that. Anyway... But over the years, I've, you know, collected, as I've been in the archive, and this was also Barney's advice. He said, you'll never get time, you know, except when you're doing your dissertation research, this kind of dedicated time to go in there and find out as much as you can about the world. You'll never get this kind of time again. I remember going into these archives and just vacuuming, you know, because I didn't Xerox anything. I just took hand notes, which I still do. And I just took notes on everything. And I had notebooks that had written on them communism, which was sitting, you know, in a box somewhere. I had written notes about Har Krishan Singh Surjit. You know, I found a, a document where the great young Sardar went out and fought the British and as a young teenager was arrested and thrown in prison and how he was radicalized and then later, of course, became the general secretary of the CPIM. But, you know, he, he began his communism when he was 14 years old you know, out there yelling at the British, putting up the tricolor. It was a great, you know, document to have found in the National Archives. But I took notes on everything. And a few years ago, um, I asked my friends at Leftward, you know, we, we need to do a book on the left. Um, Perry Anderson had just written a book called The Indian Ideology. 
And stunningly, at the front of the book, Anderson said, I'm not going to consider the left. And I wrote a review of the book for Frontline saying, you know, the book actually makes nationalism very narrow. Because when you discount the history of the left in India, you know, not just the communist left, when you discount the socialist left, communist, the Congress Socialist Party, when you discount, you know, the contribution of the great trade unions of northern India, you have a very desiccated view of what nationalism is. Then you assume that nationalism is equal to Nehru. I was really fascinated that he wrote in the introduction that there's simply not enough work on the left for me to include it in my study on the Indian ideology. And I thought, man, you know, this is a terrible thing. It's an indictment of those of us on the left that we haven't tried to produce, you know, good, robust, argumentative literature on left history. And so I brought out those old notebooks, interviews that I'd done since the 1990s, including super interviews that I had done with Anil Biswas, you know, who used to be the head of the Bengal State Party in the 1990s. I'd done these long interviews with Binoy Konar. You know, they'd been, most of them, for magazine articles. And I went back and reread them, and I said, I can write this book. So this is the book, No Free Left. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a piece of it out for you. But to set up what I'm going to read to you, I want to say at least two things. One, the immediate spur to write a book like this was, of course, the last election, where the Hindu right, you know, triumphantly won the election. Of course, it was a triumphant victory because it won with 31% of the popular vote, you know. And just because India, like many liberal democracies, has a first-past-the-post system, you can have a, you know, disproportionately greater a number of representatives in parliament, despite the fact that you only win 31% of the popular vote. And the state where the BJP was able to triumph was, of course, Uttar Pradesh, where, you know, all the the two main opposing parties, basically, the uh, Samajwadi Party, Bahujan Samaj Party, and three, the Congress, basically collapsed. I mean, these three, you know, uh, projects had no alternative for the public and the BJP was able to get past you know the bare minimum because you don't have to win 50% to win the seat in many seats the margins were very low they won 38% but they won they were the greatest vote getter the second thing of course about their victory in India is in that state of UP where they swept the election they utilized communal rhetoric so carefully and beautifully and the manipulations were so subtle and I'm, I'm looking forward to in about a year or so, maybe less, Leftward is going to publish a book by Umar Rashid, who covered the election in uh, UP for the Hindu and has some of the most interesting insights, which I think he's going to put out in this book, particularly in some crucial seats, you know, that uh, where those riots uh, had a huge impact, Muzaffarnagar riots, etc., had a huge impact uh, in these marginal seats where the BJP was able to draw, consolidate upper caste vote, uh, you know, scare uh, the minority vote away from everybody. Very suppressed minority voting, etc. Anyway, so the first thing is this election result in which, of course, the left also collapsed miserably. And the collapse of the left to the very poor showing, I think, needed an explanation. And so most of my book is an explanation, historical explanation of the collapse of the left. But part of the collapse of the left, and this is the second point, is that the left doesn't collapse in itself. 
I mean, what actually happens in India, what I argue is that from the 90s onward, the entire political spectrum that operates in the electoral domain, so from the right wing, from the BJP, all the way out to the old socialist parties that have now decided to reunite as the Janta Parivar. It's an interesting name, but anyway, uh, that is, you know, Mulayam, Nitish Kumar, etc., the old socialist, uh, you know, stalwarts, all the way from the BJP, the Congress, all the way out to the old socialists, all of them had basically come to terms with what we call neoliberalism, or what in India is liberalization. All of them had basically accommodated themselves, some enthusiastically, like the BJP, Congress extremely enthusiastically, and then toward the socialist spectrum, uh, they were not actually dragged kicking and screaming into an accommodation, but they didn't do it as enthusiastically as the BJP and the Congress. So by the 2000s, you had an Indian political spectrum where everybody was for neoliberalism except the left. And this meant that the left, which had utilized electoral calculations, you know, making deals with other political parties, especially the socialist bloc, this avenue was no longer available. The left was marginalized in a sense by the shift in the in Indian political space towards the right. And that partly is, of course, the reason why the left suffered a catastrophic defeat. The more parochial reason is that, of course, we had to carry the burden of West Bengal. Particularly, we had to carry the burden of the events in Nandigram, where on you know the 14th of November, the police opened fire and killed eight people. And then there was just mayhem in the state. And that mayhem was a severe penalty. And what I'm going to read is going to begin um, with the Nandigram story a little bit. Not much of it. But the book covers the Nandigram story because it was a huge penalty that the communist left had to carry. I mean, you're governing in West Bengal. You're push pursuing an industrialization strategy. And then, you know, peasants are killed. Why should you be different from anybody else? So that very sense of not having accommodated to neoliberalism was no more apparent. So the part toward the end of the book, where I talk about neoliberalism and communism, it goes into four or three different sections. The first section is in Bengal specifically, where the reaction to neoliberal shifts or liberalization in 1991 was to pursue an industrialization strategy. And this is a very long story, and I'm, we can go into it in the Q&A. It's a story about how there was a debate inside the Bengal party. There was a discussion about whether to pursue deeper, a deeper social agenda or to move towards industrialization. Some people believed in a kind of stage theory that you've you know, uh, done land reforms and now you have to build factories to accommodate the surplus labor, etc. And that was their reaction, that state's reaction to neoliberalism. At the same time, the left front, uh, you, you know, the four main parties united into the left front in Kerala, at the very same time, had a completely different approach to liberalization or neoliberalism. And that was, they decided that the way to move forward wasn't to go for industrialization, but to go for participatory planning. So in 1992, 93, 94, they began to do pilot projects of doing Mass scale, that means the entire state would be involved in a participatory planning exercise where the state budget would be devolved 
to the smallest municipalities and they would decide what to do with the money. So utter devolution of state funds and then an exercise in participatory planning which is unprecedented. It's never, that scale has not been seen. In 1996 was the first participatory planning experiment and it was extraordinary. And I tell the story of that. I, I mean, I remember visiting some of these panchayats where the discussions were intense over what to do with the disbursed money. You know, whether you should try to, you know, rebuild, uh, you know, some kind of cooperative or do we want to build a bridge or what do we want to do? And the debate was intensive and the debate emerged not out of a debate, but out of a survey, out of a plan. What are the resources in the district? So the beginning of participatory planning was to train people from the district to go out and investigate. You know, what are our water resources? What are the energy resources? What kind of, you know, skills do we have in the district? What kind of history have we had of social production? And based on the reports that they produced for their district, they would decide what to do with the disbursement. It was an extraordinary experiment. So that was the second response to neoliberalism. And these are two interesting responses because these are two states where the left was in government. It's very interesting. Anybody talks about the CPIM or CPIM, they always talk about Bengal. You forget that in Kerala at the same time there was an utterly different road taken by the very same political party. You know, these are two experiments in how to deal with a very complicated situation. And the third, which is what I'm going to read out for you, is of course the rest of the country. Now, in the rest of the country, the ex examples I have are in Tamil Nadu, where the, government, where the left pursued an anti-untouchability campaign. And I'm not going to read out the section on that, but I'm going to give you the introduction to that. The second uh, part in the rest of India is in Andhra Pradesh, where there was an incredible... I mean, people in... The communists in Andhra Pradesh love to walk. Because every time there's a campaign, they do these padyatras. And they walk for miles and miles and miles... And they set up these kitchens because starvation was a serious problem in districts like Anandpur, you know, including in, in Maharashtra. Severe starvation in this famine belt. And the communists set up food kitchens where they served essentially gruel. And they created such a dynamic that even, I have an example of even the local RSS guy coming to donate money to the communist gruel kitchen because they felt on the back foot, you know. So the second is this kind of gruel feeding. The third is in Haryana, where the large campaign run by the All India Democratic Women's Association was against uh, the Kap Panchayat. And it was because of these brave women, these communist women in Haryana, that the Kap Panchayat becomes news. I mean, they have fought on this issue for 20 years. And I visited, you know, these small towns and villages in Haryana where, you know, they'd been shot at by the upper caste, but they pursued with these cases, they brought them, you know, to the district courts, and then finally, eventually, and, you know, really much later than they should have, they became national news, and then the Kapanchad becomes an issue. But this issue only becomes an issue because these people sacrificed, you know, <laughs> hours and days of their lives pursuing these cases. Haryana is a fascinating, and the fourth, of course, is the one that I like most, which is the theater, street theater. Okay. So those are the four examples of the communist reaction and neoliberalism around the country. But let me read for you the introduction to that bit. Okay, It's called Creative Struggles Across India. Nandigram placed a heavy penalty on the communist movement in India when the Andhra CPIM conducted a brave and unrelenting campaign 
for comprehensive development and land rights, the local Congress politicians went for what became the general accusation across the country. Dragging West Bengal into the campaign, one Carter said, they accused us of adopting double standards. After 1991, as the impact of liberalization or neoliberalism struck, the field workers and the factory workers, the unemployed and the slum dwellers, the reaction against them came swift. There was the grief of farmers' suicides. Between 95 and 2010, a quarter of a million dead. There were the mass protests against encroachment of public land from the theft of the beetle vineyards to the POSCO steel controversy in Orissa to the defense of farmland for a special economic zone in Noida in Uttar Pradesh. Every state in India has experienced unrest as living standards for the many have deteriorated and as job prospects have remained sta stagnant. Journalists such as P. Sainath and Jaydeep Hardekar document the way lives are torn apart to create values for the industrial and agricultural bourgeoisie and for the multinational and, in and national firms that are linked to them. Both see the hammer of progress fall on the Adivasis, whose land is ground zero for exploitation, and on the Dalits, whose field labor is now driven by unimaginable pressures. When faced with the deafness of a political class and the bulldozers on their land or the foremen on their heads, writes Hardekar, protest is their only resort. But protest is not as commonplace as one imagines. In Madhya Pradesh, Hardekar encounters farmers who lost their land to the Bargi Dam. Each of the austies has to break their back to earn a living, pulling rickshaws and being hired as domestic help. Many of them join the queues to work as day laborers. Hassan Lal tells Hardekar, back in the village, people would drink occasionally, but here most of the migrants have become alcoholic. The occupants of Rani Tal would be familiar to Muhammad Ashraf, a day laborer in Delhi who told the journalist Aman Sethi, when you first come here, there is a lot of hope, Abhilasha. You think anything is possible, but slowly you realize nothing will happen. And you can live the next five years just like the last three years. And everything will be the same. Wake up, work, eat, drink, sleep, and tomorrow it's the same again. Resilience is certainly axiomatic to human lives. Nevertheless, the brutality of everyday life in today's India should not exaggerate either the civility of social life or the potential for some kind of transformative politics. People like Hassan Lal and Ashraf are buffeted by social insecurity, caught in the fragile membrane between legality and illegality, security and insecurity. Work is contingent and sometimes dangerous. Their neighborhoods are often illegal settlements. The slum population rely upon political patronage and so welcome the kind of political mafia that mimics the other mafia whose purpose is to traffic in illicit commodities, drugs, sex, weapons. Encounters in a Bombay slum led the journalist Catherine Boo to the unsettling conclusion about the ethics and politics of the poor. And this is a long quote from her. Powerless individuals blamed other powerless individuals for what they lacked. Sometimes they tried to destroy one another. In the age of global market capitalism, hopes and grievances were narrowly conceived, which blunted a sense of common predicament. Poor people didn't unite. They competed ferociously amongst themselves for gains as slender as they were provisional. 
And this undercity strife created only the faintest ripple in the fabric of the society at large. The gates of the rich occasionally rattled, remained unbreached. The politicians held forth on the middle class. The poor took down one another and the world's great unequal cities soldiered on in relative peace. Boo's verdict about the slum dwellers of Mumbai certainly rankles the liberal consciousness, which would necessarily blame the poor for turning on each other, but then be deeply anxious if the desired unity would threaten the power structure. Unity is, of course, not the natural course of action for the classes who do not control capital. The social order fragments social life, treating classes as individuals who bid desperately to sell their labor power in the marketplace. It is worse in a buyer's market, where the masses of people find it torturously hard to find employment even for a day, let alone for a career. Long-distance migration and long-daily commutes to seek tenuous jobs for low remuneration, sets the bar for solidarity at a high level. It is an arrangement that suits employers everywhere well, writes journalist Siddharth Deb, ensuring that the workers will be too insecure and uprooted to ever mount organized protests against their conditions and wages. They are from distant regions, of no interest to local politicians seeking votes, and they are alienated from the local people by differences in language and culture. In 2012, the CPIM's Prakash Karat assessed the impact that the neoliberal policies has had over the, over the past two decades, including the rise of contract workers in the unorganized and organized sectors, the degradation of agricultural work, and the attenuation of the social sector. It is necessary to concretely study the impact of the neoliberal policies on different classes and sections of the people, he wrote. This is precisely what the CPIM and its mass organizations have been doing across the country, conducting surveys to uncover the hidden social relations and then build struggles around them. The fight against neoliberal policies can advance only when we take up the various local issues of the people, Carter wrote, and develop sustained struggles on their behalf. In districts across India, communist activists have thrown themselves at the small sparks of struggle that emerge or tried to kindle struggles in their own small way. In May 2013, a thousand people organized by the local CPIM unit in India's southernmost state of Kanya, district of Kanyakumari blocked roads at 28 places and courted arrest to call attention to high inflation, high unemployment and high incidence of corruption. In December of that year, in Kulgam in Jammu and Kashmir, at the other end of India, CPIM activists demonstrated against irregular power supply, dismal operation of the public distribution system, and scarcity of essential commodities and safe water. These are not bastions of the left, and yet even here the left activists go amongst the working class and peasantry to engage with creative tactics to lift their grievances from anomie to action. When workers' movements in the 19th century and into the early 20th century began, they concentrated their efforts on the organization of trade unions in large factories, strategic sectors such as telecommunications, I mean transportation, and in the political fight for the nationalization of entire industrial sectors. Trade unions, Marx wrote, in value, price, and profit, protect workers from capital's worst excesses. But then they are also necessary to build workers' power to challenge capital politically. Trade unions, Marx said, 
are not to forget that they are fighting with effects, but not with the causes of those effects. That they are retarding the downward movement, but not changing its direction. That they are applying palliatives, not curing the malady. Marx and the workers' movement that adopted his science saw the factory as a strategic site to build power. Through trade unions, power was built at the site of production. These unions, including in India, became the school of the working class, the leading edge of political militancy in society. But with the demise of the old style of factories and of trade unions, these schools are less influential than they were in the creation of a socialist culture in working class communities. In India, 90% of the workforce is in the informal sector. This figure includes industrial workers, many of whom now work for subcontractors and not directly for the firm's factory. Industry has been reorganized to make trade union politics very difficult uh, in these circumstances. There are the workers, uh, nevertheless, workers in these extremely difficult circumstances have been bravely fighting. There are the workers of the Maruti Suzuki factory in Manesar in Haryana and of the Volvo bus factory in Karnataka, the Anganwadi workers of, of Gujarat and the Asha workers of Punjab. Harsh conditions with irregular contracts and low pay as well as with state, state authorities decidedly against them, the workers nonetheless have struck work and held protests to make small and important gains. Attempts for workers to form unions are treated as criminal actions. Maruti Suzuki's management executive officer, S.Y. Siddiqui, said in June 2011, the problem at Manesar is not one of industrial relations. It is an issue of crime and militancy. The firm would not, he said, tolerate any external affiliation of the union. In other words, the workers who had created their own union would not be allowed to find political allies amongst the national labor federations to help their fledgling struggle. Violence against union organizers along the Gurgaon, Manesar, Rewari stretch is mirrored in the Coimbatore, Chennai belt. The imminent violence in both these zones led to industrial actions that led to the death of some managers. The 2012 murder of Avinash Kumar Dev at the Maruti Suzuki plant and the 2009 murder of Roy George of the Toyota General Motors plant in Coimbatore. Such violence is the outcome of the suffocation of worker power exemplified by the August 6, 2003 Supreme Court judgment on T.K. Rangarajan versus government of Tamil Nadu, which, which suppresses strike actions. The general tenor of the courts matched the industrial lobbies. In 2009, after the uprisings in Coimbatore, Jayanta Davar, president of the Automotive Component Manufacturers Association of India, put it bluntly. We can't be a capitalist country and that has socialist labor laws. State power has increasingly and straightforwardly put itself behind industry and against workers, making trade unionism and industrial action tantamount to criminality. If unions are on the back foot, the old strategy of nationalization seems to have receded far into the background. Nationalization was a strategy to capture the investment of capital and turn it over to society and workers through public sector management. The global commodity chain, disarticulated production of the factory across many countries has made nationalization almost impossible. In many cases, industrial plants no longer manufacture the entire final commodity. Parts are made here and parts are made there with the various components assembled at a separate place. 
If a state government nationalizes one factory, it would not be able to capture the entire process, but only a part of it. The nationalized factory would now, at best, be able to operate like a subcontractor for global capital. Even if reservoirs of progressive nationalism were not depleted, the structural fragmentation of production has made this strategy of economic nationalism inert. Factory-based organization and nationalism are not eternal strategies. They have been worn to the bone. Other ways to reach the working class in the informal sector are necessary, as are other ways to leverage worker power against the disarticulated production system. Victorious capital has nonetheless not been able to vanquish the labor it hires. Suppressed wages, rising prices, and difficulty in gaining access to basic needs creates the social basis for political unrest. Many of these struggles, however, have been at the point of consumption rather than the point of production. Worker housing built by factory owners or by the state no longer exist as they once did. In their place, the working class lives now largely in slums, where facilities for adequate survival are simply not available. Where housing is built, it is not for families, with the expectation that single men and women will migrate to work, working for a few years before returning to their homes. In slums, entire families can live, but only barely. This is the reason why the fights over water and power, sanitation and safety take up the leisure time of India's workers. It is in these zones that struggles break out at the level of popular frustration. The left has been active in the politics of the slumlands, where the activism of women and young people has drawn in the All India Democratic Women's Organ Association and many, many other left groups, as well as the trade unions and the left parties themselves. The politics of the slumland was essential to the political victories in Venezuela and Bolivia, both countries where the fights over gas and water, the right to build settlements, and the right to cheap public transportation provided activists with the opportunity to build local militant organizations rooted in the slumlands. And then I have a whole section on how, in fact, in Bolivia, when we think about the gas and water wars, the activists were all trade unionists, including Oscar Olivares. They were all veteran trade unionists who helped you know, uh, organize the gas and water wars uh, in, in Bolivia. Workers' movements might no longer grow only from the factory to the community. It might work the other way around. Workers are never only workers. They are also people marked by community ties and gender, by the way they eat and the way they take their social pleasure. The divides amongst workers provide sufficient openings for capital to break down the potential of united struggles. It is fear of disunity and the legacy of partition and communal riots that had the left insistent on united working class struggle to the detriment of close attention to caste, gender and religious hierarchies within working class communities. But the people are fractured. It is part of that diversity and it is a mechanism of hierarchy. For example, in rural India, one of the most interesting features of the way in which politics works is that it does not run in a straight line with cultivators and landless laborers on one side and landowners and the state on the other. Fractures of caste and gender run deep and are deepened in the agricultural crisis. Caste assertions emerge as one way that some landless laborers and cultivators have moved their agenda for dignity. 
This has been clear to the Kisan Sabha movement through its history and not so much in its practice. In 1987, Narendra Malasure of the Maharashtra Kisan Sabha recorded how the Sabha had formed a protection of landless committee to protect largely Dalit and Adivasi landholders from confiscation of their land by the state. The following year, in 1988, under the auspices of this Samiti, the smallholders and landless peasantry occupied 600 acres of land. Short of a decade later, in 1996, and in the thick of the neoliberal policy impact on agriculture, M.V. Govindam of Kerala told the All India Agricultural Workers Union that they had to mobilize more and more scheduled tribe and caste sections under our banner. It was well known to these delegates to the union's conference that the vast mass of the agricultural workers were Dalits. The union had not taken up their special grievances as the demands of the union itself. The union's general secretary, A. Vijay Raghavan, summarized the discussion on caste to say, we should take up important issues like atrocities against scheduled castes and tribes, the struggle for house sites, drinking water, lavatories, doing away with social disabilities of all kinds. So far, except in one or two states, we have failed to take up these issues as broad campaigns. In Midnapur, West Bengal, land reforms and tenancy registration had had a major impact on the lives of the rural poor. But strikingly, the reforms in registration favored men, those who, work, those who worked the tiller in the conventional phrase. Single women had little access to the land distribution, and since they did not have access to rural trades like carpentry and masonry, they suffered from the vagaries of wage work. The view that women did not use the plow was, as Jayati Gupta put it, more a social taboo rather than a physical inability. Women did the hardest works in, work in the field, and merely because they had been forbidden in many places to use the plow, they did not get rights to the land. Gupta's close study in Midnapur uncovered something important. This social handicap of the plow was used against strengthening the asset base of the women, she wrote. It is only after the women's organization raised its voice and pressurized the government that provision was made to provide some land to the single women. The role of the All India Democratic Women's Association here is underlined. If the mass organization had not taken up the special issue of women agriculturalists, their grievances might have passed by unattended. It was clear to the agricultural unions, Vijay Raghavan, that while women comprise half the agricultural labor force and have participated in our struggles, and we have not been able to ensure equal wages for equal work on a countrywide basis or to deal with their specific problems as a priority. Vijay Raghavan had been pushed by the female delegates, Rama Devi of Andhra Pradesh, Burubai of Maharashtra, Leela of Kerala, and Meena Kumari of Punjab. Of course, from Punjab, she was Meena Kumari. Nobody has seen old movies. Useless people. Okay. Of course, only in Punjab would you name a daughter Meena Kumari. Rama Devi pointed out, women took initiative in framing the wage demand, organizing the strikes, and in final discussion with the landlords. Even though the majority of the committee members in rural organizations are women, that is not reflected in mandal and district organizations, which is to be rectified. All these women who raised the issue of equal wages and leadership for women were also members of AIDWA. They brought the AIDWA assessment to their union work, showing the power of the mass organizations in developing leadership and cross-fertilizing movements. In 2003, the CPIM Central Committee... Okay, leave all this then. Let me come to the end. 
these fights, you know, across fertilization fights, just as more conventional trade union fights are part of the horizon of socialist struggle. This is the reason why the left has been an active participant in recent years in the temple entry movement in southern Tamil Nadu. Gender questions have come to the fore in Haryana, where the Kap Panchayat has re-emerged as a central locus to fight a restive population you know, through this agricultural crisis. It is also here that the left has led from the front with Edwa in the lead, drawing in women to fight for their dignity alongside their livelihoods. The left has to deepen its role in these sorts of so-called social fights because it is in these arenas that broad questions of rural power are being contested. To step away from this arena is to ignore the most important social struggles of our day, which are not merely about identity, but always about dignity and survival, as well as the expansion of the imagination. One of the consistent self-critiques made by the communists in the course of their assessments of their work is that there is no translation of their struggles into electoral gain. There seems to be a general feeling that whether the left is voted into office or not, it would continue to lift up the banner of these struggles. The struggles that the left leads are not premised on the communist winning elections. The limitation of the left to the level of social struggle has not occasioned the kind of debate that it perhaps should. What the left has not been able to do is to make the case within the limitations of bourgeois democracy of why its delegates should be voted to the houses of the people. Certainly the left's parliamentarians have been able to block initiatives that go against the interests of the working class and the peasantry. But what the left has not been able to develop is a coherent narrative that motivates people to vote communist. There is no captivating sense that the left is the future, that the left can indeed take power and that only the left can find solutions to the pressing problems of today. The compelling urgency to believe that the future is in the arena of the left is no longer in place. It has to be created not merely by the struggles in the present, but by a more robust and confident assertion for the future. The remarkable struggles in Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, Haryana, Delhi, etc. Uh, would be given a major boost if an overarching narrative that these local struggles are part of a larger and inevit inevitable tendency. The horizon of the left remains in the midst of the present struggles. It will need to be stretched out into the future to push aside the prevailing view that the future is the domain of the right. This is a little quote from uh, Maria Tegway, 1925, the great Peruvian Marxist. What, and I'll end with this. What most clearly and obviously differentiates the bourgeoisie and the proletariat in this era is myth. The bourgeoisie no longer has myths. It has become incredulous, skeptical, nihilistic. The reborn liberal myth aged too much. The proletariat has a myth, the social revolution. It moves towards that myth with a passionate and active faith. The bourgeoisie denies, the proletariat affirms. The bourgeois intellectuals entertain themselves with a rationalist critique of the method, the theory, revolutionary technique. What misunderstanding. The strength of revolutionaries is not in their science. This is my favorite line. The strength of revolutionaries is not in their science. It is in their faith, their passion, in their will. It is a religious, mystical, spiritual power. It is the force of myth. Thanks a lot.
Uh, okay, we now have time for questions. I'll be walking around with the microphone if anybody would care to uh, ask a question. By the way, right after that, Maria Tegway starts writing about Gandhi. So, just to let you know. <laughs> yes, please. Oh, he's gone up there. Hi, good evening, Dr. Prashad. Um, you had talked a little bit about uh, agricultural trade unionists in Kerala and how they made common cause with low-caste people. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little, about, a little bit more about that. Uh, what happened during the uh, neoliberal convulsions of the 90s that you mentioned and on to today? You know, just uh, what the Let me give you the example happened. from Tamil Nadu rather than Kerala. Uh, because in Tamil Nadu, it's very interesting. I mean, in both states, the social dynamic is similar. But the example in Tamil Nadu is better. Okay? So in Tamil Nadu, the bulk of, in many districts in southern Tamil Nadu, bulk of the, uh, the non-landed agricultural laborers are either Dalits or so-called backward castes. And the main issues that they confronted were questions of social dignity. And there were things that might appear minor, like, for instance, in these villages, upper caste built walls, you know, apartheid walls, essentially, uh, that blocked Dalits from accessing parts of the town, or they had to walk around. And so what the left took up as the principal issue, first created a group called... Tamil Nadu Anti-Untouchability Front. It's a very important front that they created. And they would work alongside groups like the Liberation Panthers to walk into these towns and run a campaign, not just come in and break the wall, because that's kind of stupid vanguardism. They would come in and work with people, spend you know months on end. And there was one particular town where they first broke a wall. It was incredible, you know. Tens of thousands of people from rural area came to watch the wall be knocked down. You know, we think about the great myth-making of the Berlin Wall coming down. One day, perhaps, the apartheid wall in Israel will be brought down. You know, these are enormous walls. This was an enormous wall for these, you know, uh, this, these communities. And the breaking of that wall was very significant. So what happens then is in other towns and villages in South India, they then start campaigns against the walls. And this builds confidence among landless laborers. So the second issue, demand that they had was entry into the temples. Now again, you would say, communists running temple entry campaign, what, what is this about? Well, look, you know, you can sit on your high house and say, we are all secular, we don't want anybody to go to the temple. The fact is, these are real living human beings who are building their confidence in the world and they want to enter that damn temple. So your carter are out there fighting to get them the right to enter the temple. And this was a huge thing. And in the process, people joined Edwa, people joined agricultural Kisan Sabha movement, they joined agricultural workers organization. You know, so you build your other movements, but you concentrate on where people's demands are. And I think for a very long time in the last, maybe, you know, from the 70s to the 2000s, there was a lack of emphasis by the uh, rural organizing of the left to say what are the specific demands of Dalits, Adivasis, etc. There was a genuine fear of splitism, splitting the people into the divides. The fact is that people are already bloody split. You know, you're not splitting them. You have to fight and build where you are. And these are offensive 
divides. These are not, you know, merely divides of culture. These are divides of hierarchy. And socialism is against hierarchy of all kinds. So I think this is a huge advance for the Indian agricultural workers movement. That no longer is it, you know, I'm going to use a word, but I don't mean merely. I mean, because the question of wages is incredibly important. But it's not merely a question of wages. It's not merely a question of working days. It's also a question of, if you hire women workers, where are they going to go to the bathroom? You know, where are you going to create some facility? These are very important fights, and I think we've neglected these fights. So the Tamil Nadu experience has taught us the importance of taking these up front and center, not as, you know, a side activity. Uh, I would actually like to uh, ask a question, uh, yeah. taking the prerogative of the fellow holding the microphone. Please. <laughs> uh, and it's this. Uh, at the end of the day, why do you focus on political parties? Uh, that is looking not only at India, but more broadly protest movements against neoliberalism, Occupy, the protests in Brazil, uh, the protests uh, uh, encompassed under the umbrella, uh, the umbrella of the Arab Spring. Uh, oftentimes what one sees are protest movements, but that don't translate into support for traditional leftist parties, so on and so forth. And so you mentioned uh, other uh, activist movements among Dalits, among women, so on and so forth. Uh, why then uh, ultimately do you return to looking at conventional communist political parties in India? Well, the first thing is that we still live in an age where bourgeois democracy, or at least the trappings of bourgeois democracy, you know, is the prevalent illusion of our time. You know, people still believe that it's good to have elections. And the great error in the Arab Spring, by the way, just the Egypt venue of this, is that, you know, at the, after you, Mubarak leaves power, A, the military remained in authority, and B, the liberals and left simply didn't have political forces to contest the election. So the Muslim Brotherhood walks away with the election. You know, you might be able to fill Tahrir Square, but you don't know how to, you don't have lists of, you don't even know which are the constituencies in your country. I mean, this is the way in which politics is organized in bourgeois power. You, you cannot walk away from that. And it's very interesting, in the 2014 election, even people who had for the entire career, and I'm thinking of Medha Patkar, you know, my old friend, SP Uday Kumar, people who had thought conventional politics are corrupting, ran for office. And they found that it's not easy to make the transition. You know, I think Medha lost her, her deposit. She ran in South Bombay. Uday Kumar lost his deposit. He ran in an area where he had led a major anti-nuclear struggle. So I think there's an understanding that this is the predominant political illusion of our time and you cannot not participate in it. And I use that term political illusion deliberately. It is what we imagine to be political. We know that there are limits to it, but people still want to participate. In India, levels of bloody participation are so high. It would be utterly elitist to say we should abjure elections. You know, if you can't convince the people who are coming in to vote that you are their sentinel, then there's something wrong with you, not them. Or with the system. But you can't just say the system is bad and then sit on your hands. You have to find a way through this. Yes, yes. He's the boss of the mic. We'll bring... This is Professor Komarov. You look just like Professor Komarov. Oh, you look just like Professor Komarov. Yes. Okay. Now my question kind of relates to He's that, coming. but it's slightly 
Shall I go? Please, please go ahead. Okay. No, I mean, um, I was very happy to hear that you're writing a history of the left in India, especially post-independence, and I think that's a great Not post-independence, from 1920s. From, okay, that's even so better. But uh, I mean, there was a lot in there, so I'm still trying to get my head around it. And my question basically pertains to your definition of the left uh, and how much you understand left equal to parliamentary left. So, I mean, I'm just thinking, for example, towards the end, you made a couple of st statements. You said, as in basically, that the left hasn't been able to function within the framework of a bourgeois democracy. And the immediate argument that leapt to me was, well, it will never be able to function within a bourgeois democracy, and it will need to find other ways of mobilizing for a revolution. And you, but you did not address that possibility within the presentation, and you went on to say, therefore, it seems like there is no sense that the left can be the future. And I was thinking of the extra-parliamentary left in India, I mean, which is, just to rehearse facts, which would be obvious to you, is that it's, it's massive. I mean, not to over-exaggerate their presence. Like, I remember going to a talk by Sitarami Achuri a few years back in Delhi, and he, according to him, there were above 30 unregistered political parties of the communist left. Uh, the largest of them, just one of mm. them, the CPI Maoists today, according to government statistics, has active presence or control, territorial control or active presence of 33% of India's districts. So this is a big alternative in India, whatever we may think of it and however. Mm -hmm. So I, I was just trying to understand how you think through that possibility in writing a history of the left in India. No, no, it's a great question. I have a very long section on the Maoists in here. Um, the Maoists are part of the left. But, you know, to be fair to the Maoists, you, you may know that Ganpati wrote a very long letter to the, his cadre last year, in which he talked about the severe problem that they are facing. I mean, half of their Politburo is in prison. Uh, when they united in 2004, 10 years ago, there were about, he said in his letter, between 15 and 20,000 cadre. He said, we have lost about 80% of our cadre. You know, and he, he writes there that we have to break people out of prison. He says, we have to, it's a, you know, I mean, he says, we have to go and organize more people, one-third of the central committee is out of prison, I think, or something like that. They haven't been able to organize a party congress. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting, self-critical letter. And I, I was interested in that because I think I'd much rather listen to him than listen to people who romanticize the Maoists. Because I don't have any romance either way. I'm not fundamentally, you know, saying they don't belong in the left. I think they do. They are very much a part of the left. I'm also interested in the experience of, say, um, liberation, which, you know, came above ground in the 80s. We know um, Mishra decided, you know, and his group decided in the 80s. They were, you know, pretty strong in the United Bihar. And they decided that um, the root of what they consider, and this goes back to Satyanarayan and the old fellows who used to argue that we shouldn't become about individual terrorism. You know, there was a long debate in which Balagopal was involved and people. And so they come above ground. I'm, I was very interested that in the last couple of months, Liberation and the Left Front have now made a, uh, you know, an electoral alliance in Bihar and in Jharkhand. And they've made an arrangement to have a two-week-long struggle together, nationwide struggle. It's very interesting because, you know, at the same time as the socialists, in name only, are uniting, you know, because they understand their weakness. Although they are not having an ideological conversation. The left 
just did a Jan Sunwai. I mean, I don't know if you followed it. Just a few days ago, they had this meeting together. They are having a discussion about unity in action and about the ideological you know, disagreements. I think this is very productive. So I, I'm not... I, I'm not one to believe, I don't believe, I don't like the phrase parliamentary left, extra parliamentary left. I think the left is involved in a million different things. I think this is the particular moment when these distinctions are going to become meaningless. Especially when, you know, the so-called parliamentary left has an anemic position in parliament. You know, to, now for you to say the parliamentary left, and what, we're talking about 12 seats in the Lok Sabha. You know, it's ridiculous for, for the CPIM, for AIDWA, which has 13 million members to be described as a parliamentary left. I mean, AIDWA is the Women's Front of the Communist Party India Marxist. It has between 12 and 13 million members. What parliamentary left are they? You know, you know what I'm saying? So I think these distinctions for me have become slightly anachronistic. There was a time earlier when the principal debate was between what are the roads forward? I think currently the issue is, do we have any good roads ahead of us? How do we create the road for ourselves? Everybody is feeling extremely uh, in a position of uh, great danger. Because I think that there's been such a, a precipitous change in the last maybe four or five years of uh, you know, crushing of people's movements. You know, the Supreme Court judgments against striking have been so vicious that there's been a real sense that we better we better not look at each other as the principal enemy. Otherwise, we are going to get killed. Uh, yes, sir. And, and oh, wait a minute. She had a hand up first. Well, perhaps we can cluster a few questions okay, together one, so that two, we can hear a few more voices. Three, four. How's that? One, Start. two, three, four. Thank you. My five. question actually is leading off from what Abhishek just asked. I had a similar question, but to extend that, if you don't look at some image like an imaginary of the left as, say, parliamentary or something so unified. And you, and maybe it's a good idea to look at it. One of the problems that I've been looking through when talking about the left in India has been that the tendency to focus on parliamentary, on only the parliamentary left, makes it look like a fascist or, or does not give do justice to the kind of intellectual debate that has been happening in the left in India. But because of that sort of disunified picture, don't you think that that is also what allows something like a dissolved people's movement, like say something like the Ahmadmi Party, to then come in and really take over the popular imagination for somebody who thinks that they have an ethical role to play in the political uh, landscape of their country, but cannot understand what the left is because it's, it's too many things all at once. So how does one negotiate that problem of being either too rigid or too fragmented? Okay, this is my favorite thing. Most of my book, by the way, is about just this. It's a simple contradiction. How do these people on the left live in the present and create the future? You know, I mean, there's great, you know, there, when you go back to the, the early uh, communes in Calcutta, there's great descriptions because, you know, these left-wing people, men had long hair. And not that long hair was weird in Calcutta in the 1920s, but these were some pretty strange men. You know, our friend, uh, What's his name? Tagore, the Trotsk becomes a Trotskyite. You know, uh, uh, Nazrul Islam would roam around singing on the streets. You know, it was okay for Baus to do that, but this guy was an odd duck. And the descriptions of the Chols in Bombay as well, where people, men and women would be living unmarried together, 
you know, they're incubating a future society, except the people around them were like, what are you crazy people doing? You know, uh, uh, you know, what, what, you know, in South India, it was a whole, this, anyway, great story. This is a great question because this is not merely a question about, you know, uh, you know, uh, say parliamentary, et cetera. It's a question about how do, how is a dynamic created that suggests that you are askance of reality and yet you're trying to bring in people into your movement? I think it's a serious question. There's an American communist poet who wrote a poem in which he said, communists essentially are exiles from the future. I've always thought that's a great line. You know, it captures something about this discrepancy of, of life. You know, so, and the tugs of the, of the worst of social hierarchies. I mean, I, I was amazed that the CPIM at least, only in 2005, released a document saying that, you know, you should not, you know, this is not a good way to treat women. You know, the document of women is amazing, but it was published in 2005, not in, you know, 1963 or, or some, you know. But still it's there, you know, you say, by the grace of God. In 1954, EMS critiqued a play called, um, you know, Why I Became a Communist. And he wrote a great critique of this play because he said, look, the playwright, it's a totally agitprop play, you know. We have got the red flag, comrade. You know, <laughs> he said, the communists in this play are cartoons. He says, they are not people. You know, they, they don't look like people. They're not flesh and blood. They, they don't breathe life. You know, they are not uh, living people. They need to be alive. So that's the first thing I would say, that one needs to come there and say, we are living people. We're not caricatures. We're not always there, you know, disparaging the world. We are. In, we love the world. We want to make it a different world. You know, there's got to be a way. The Aadmi Party had a very interesting history, and I say it had a history because I don't know if it can have the same, uh, you know, Icarian experience again. I mean, look, the media in India has been searching for some kind of liberal or social democratic force that can say we are against corruption and poverty, but we're not communists. And the communists can never be that force. You know, the Congress used to be that. Liberals loved the Congress because the Congress was basically for the agrarian and industrial bourgeoisie, but had this patina of we are for the poors. And we are, you know, Sonia Gandhi is like the last Congress leader who can talk authentically about being for the poors. And liberals like Ram Guha and others, they bemoan the fact that the Congress is no longer that. And AAP became that, which is liberalism without communism. And so to then tell the communists, why can't you do what AAP did, is impossible. Because the communists are not saying, we are generally okay with reality, but we are against corruption, which everybody in India is against corruption. There's no political party that's pro-corruption. Everybody's against corruption. But then they said, we are for the poor's. And that's extremely appealing. And, you know, that's why Ram Gua and Caravan in 2011 said, why doesn't the CPIM just drop the whole hammer and sickle joke, just throw out the whole communism, just become a social democratic party? But, I mean, that would be, a tra that would be catastrophic. I mean, the, the best example of why this is a catastrophe is the Arab world. The left was disbanded. It is catastrophic for Arab politics not to have a left pole. It is grievous. 
Okay, so let's group together a couple of questions. First here. Yeah, yeah, I want to raise the issue, uh, and I'm really, it's a question, not a, you know, not a, not a political position, of uh, whatever happened to the proletariat in this, um, in this picture. Uh, Is there any future for a communist movement that based itself on the working class, and particularly industrial working class, which is still remains substantial in India, but not an organized force. Um, my understanding is that there, you know, the, this, the power of the communist-led trade unions has declined dramatically. Yeah. And um, is there any future for that? Or is it, was, is it must to be a wholly new way or something like that? Must that be repudiated, that strategy, or... Is there any life left in it at all? No, no. It's. I mean, my whole thing is that that the strategy is necessary. The question is that the factory may not be the point of organizing. I mean, if that is closed off, if you go back and read, you know, Marx or you read the the tradition after Marx, nobody said that the factory is the place to build, you know, socialism. The factory was a unique opportunity to build socialism. Today, that opportunity is very difficult. You, it is. Working class struggles are the only way to take hold of reality. But the question is, where do you build the struggle? You know, there is available, there are reservoirs of discontent in the world of social life, in the points of consumption. There are already struggles afoot. You know, there are struggles for water, for instance, or electricity. So what generally happens is these struggles for electricity happen and then bourgeois parties will canalize in there and provide electricity as a political good. We will give you power, but then you will all deliver your votes to us. We have to politicize these struggles. You know, not allow them to be... In 1996, I was campaigning for uh, Subhashini Ali in Kanpur. And a worker told me, look, I love you guys. You are the best people. You're always honest. You don't you know, you always treat us with respect. He was talking very freely. He said, I know you will always fight for us in the factory. I have the red flag for the factory, but in my neighborhood, I have to fly the Congress flag because they bring us blankets and they give us water trucks. And <laughs> So until we politicize these political goods and make that the point of proletarian struggle, which it already is, but it keeps getting short-circuited, so I, I just feel like the factory is becoming much harder as a point of organizing. The field is, is a very important place to organize in India. The field is actually more important as a space of organizing now. But it may not be in one field you organize all the workers. It might be that through delivery of food, you organize a community. You know, the, you, we have to be creative in how we, we create our campaigns. You know, you can't keep banging at a factory, especially with the way the courts are making unionism more and more illegal. We have to be creative. Don't directly, you know, it's a matter of kung fu. You don't go directly at somebody's fist is out. You don't go and hit it directly. You try to use the force against them. <laughs> you got to be mysterious. And we have time for just one more question, I'm afraid. Got to be mysterious. Um. My question primarily relates to uh, what do you think is the future of the left movement, especially given the fact that it was so popular uh, in the states of Bengal and Kerala? Um, and 
now they're just completely on the margins. And uh, particularly in West Bengal, uh, the sort of manner in which the Trinamool has come into picture and yet they do not seem to be um, doing as much as they promised and there does seem to be a general level of frustration building up. Um, so what do you think is the future of the left sort of coming back in these two states? Well, look, in Kerala, the, the left has not gone anywhere. Kerala is an interesting place. I mean, Kerala, the population is too smart for any political movement. You know, one year they punish this party. There's never, you know, in Bengal, whatever you say about the Bengal left front, they won seven general elections. I mean, it's extraordinary. 34 years stretch. You know, it never had such a long incumbency. Now, people will say they used force in the countryside. That's maybe to some extent true, but it's not the whole answer. The fact is that through three strategies, land reform, tenancy registration, you know, Operation Bargadar, and thirdly, the panchayat system, you know, the three legs of left-front agricultural plan, they brought enormous constituencies into the left political world. What tended to happen is, and I remember this is the long interview I did with Anil Biswas in 1995. Anil Biswas said that we are, we are going to get smashed in the countryside because there is increasing uh, uh, capitalism in the countryside and we don't have a new campaign to draw uh, you know, people into politics. That once these things are done, we're just sort of sitting back and enjoying the benefits of these three enormous, uh, you know, changes in the countryside. So there had been a debate, must push education, must push health care, things like that, new social goods, new campaigns. But, you know, in the 90s and really up to uh, the mid-2000s, mass popular campaign in the countryside was not happening. And part of this is the problem of incumbency. I mean, if a political party keeps winning elections, it generally you generally turn to the administration and say, there's a problem, solve it. Instead of saying, let's go and organize people to fight to change something. So habits of administration came into the party completely. And the party is having a hard time in Bengal moving from habits of administration to habits of politics. It's going to take time. You know, it's going to take time. Plus, on the other side, we've had, I have lists of names of people, several hundred Kader killed. You know, in Midnapur, Kader wiped out. I mean, I traveled through Midnapur and wrote some stories during the election. I wrote these stories stunningly in the Telegraph. You know, they paid me to write about the killing of communist Kader in, uh, in, you know, Deb, the great film star. Oh, man, I covered the, this was a great, this is a great experience. Mamta Manaji was doing a rally. <laughs> and she was to come by helicopter. This was a great story. And she was campaigning for Dave. You know who is one of the best-looking people in Bengal? Have you ever seen this guy? He was the greatest film star in India. At least that's what she says. So they eventually they arrived. They're five, six hours late. And the crowd is sitting there. And I had just done a story about these communists who had been threatened by Trinamul people. Said, you better come to our rally. If you don't come, we're going to beat your brother up. All these kind of stories. Anyway, forget those boring stories. Here's excitement, right? Film star! People are there. This is how you do politics in India today. You bring a film star and elect them to parliament. She had film stars like Munmun Sen, who was, you know, I mean, Munmun Sen, God bless her, no political trajectory, you know. Mamta is smart. Put her up, 
Anyway, Dave was there. Dave came to the mic and said, you know, I don't know anything about politics. He's an extremely nice guy. You know, he's got no... <laughs> does not, he says, I don't know anything about... Then she comes to the mic. Before she says anything, she says, he's very good in films. Vote for him. <laughs> he doesn't know anything, but he's very good at films. <laughs> and then she said, I was to come by helicopter, but my helicopter was damaged. They want to kill me. They, man, the amazing populism of uh, the political rhetoric. Now, this is where, the, you know, on the other side, Narendra Modi in Banaras, you know, this is the way to create India. We will have 24 hours, 365-day electricity. You think the Congress can do it? They can't do it. You know who can do it? I can do it. I have a 56-inch chest. You know, on, on, on the internet, 56 in chess, Modi, bring in more. I mean, how do you compete against this kind of political rhetoric? This is where the left, you know, has to undertake serious understanding of what is our myth. They have the myth of the 56 in chess. Mamta has the myth of everybody's trying to kill me, but I am with you. I'm standing for you. We don't have a myth. Our leaders don't have a narrative. Vote for us because we're better than them. We're not communal. We try not to get rid of jobs. <laughs> you know, we are in a very difficult position. You know, it's easy to laugh at that. Can you give me a better narrative? You know, we are convulsed. I mean, e even in the Maoist camp, you know, what is it? It's defensive. You know, what's the future? You know, what, what do you have to offer people as the future? And we have a set of ideas. But we're unable, I think, to put that forward at this point as the myth of the future. And until we can do two things, one is very creatively struggle, wherever the opportunities arise, and increasingly in the social domain, which is very important because it's about dignity. And socialism is about dignity. If that is not where we put our energy in, we will be finished. And secondly, we have to think much broader, not just in terms of, you know, um, you know the lesser of evils or things like that. We have to say we are actually... We actually have a better, you know, eight, 700 million Indians live in deprivation. That's a statistic from McKinsey, you know, McKinsey. There were actually 680 million Indians live in deprivation. That's an astounding statistic. The BJP has no answer to those Indians. The Congress has never had any answer to those Indians. The Samajwadi Party doesn't even understand what 680 million is. If we don't come up with an answer... It is catastrophe. Uh, on that somber note... <laughs> uh, Why? It's a positive uh, <laughs> note. It means we have relevance. <laughs> uh, uh, I'd like to... Well, first, let us thank Vijay Prashad for visiting us today. <laughs>